0: Good morning again. Take your Bibles. go to Ephesians chapter one. Ephesians chapter one. We finally get to the end of the first chapter of Ephesians. It's only taken us two months. So take heart. We will be in Ephesians pretty much the, uh, the whole year uh, here in, in Sunday morning, and just a lot of uh, terrific things about the church in Ephesians as we've seen already. Today, looking specifically at verses 19 through verse 23, the end of the chapter. I was down at uh, All Miller Park yesterday morning and realized that the river that goes through there had become much wider than it was earlier. That whole lower section of All Miller Park was basically part of the river. Now you could still see where the water was moving, moving rapidly where the river usually is, but it also spread out. And it reminded me of, of the power of a storm. And we saw that some on, on Friday and, and have, uh, or Thursday, I guess it was. No, it was Friday. Get my days mixed up. Um, we see, you see the power of a storm, right? What, what, is, what is powerful in life? If, if you're a car guy, you may talk about the horsepower of a, of a Corvette, right? Or, or a, a Ford Mustang or something like that. If you're an electrician, you may talk about wattage or, or electrical power. If you're a tech guy, you may talk about computing power. If you're a 10-year-old girl who likes to outdo her brothers, you would talk about girl power, right? In, in our EPA-driven society, we hear a lot about solar power or nuclear power. And the storm on, on Friday reminded me of probably one of, the, one of the most powerful things that I have witnessed is standing in the aftermath of a hurricane. And you see just how powerful nature can be, high winds and storm surge and and rushing water and driving rain, combining to basically redo a landscape, downing trees and leveling buildings. It's it's incredible the power that is in a hurricane. Today we get to look at in verse number 19 and following in Ephesians chapter 1, we look at the power that trumps all of those powers combined, and that is God power. God's omnipotent power. In Ephesians 1 verse 19, it says, Paul's here in his prayer still. He started this prayer in verse 17. It continues to the end of 23. It's a prayer to know God, as we talked about last week. And in his prayer for the Ephesians, he says this, that we would know, verse 19, what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power. Paul, in his prayer here for the Ephesians, which, like we said, is a terrific prayer for us as well, he prays that we would know the exceeding greatness of God's power toward us who believe. What is the exceeding greatness of God's power? We would call that, theologically, God's omnipotence. Omnipotence. It means to have unlimited or, or very great power. God's omnipotence means, we would say, He is all-powerful. God is all-powerful. Creation proves that, doesn't it? Creation proves God's omnipotence, that He simply spoke into existence. Out of nothing came everything. And it was by the word of his mouth he commanded, and they were created, the Psalms tell us. He spoke, he said, Let there be light, and there was light. That's power. That is extreme power. We also see it in salvation, do we not? Our salvation proves the omnipotence of God, that God brings life to us where there was only death, that he has transferred us, as we read in our scripture reading, from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. That's the power of God. In God's omnipotence, what can God do? What can God do in his omnipotence? He can do anything that aligns with his will, purpose, and nature. God in his omnipotence can do anything that aligns with his will, purpose, and nature. Trick question. Are there things God cannot do? Yes, there are. Because he only does things that align with his will, his purpose, and his nature. For instance, he cannot lie. Right? Because that goes against his nature. He cannot change. That goes against his will and his purpose. He cannot sin. That goes against who he is. But when God operates within his will, his purpose, and his nature, guess what? He can do whatever he pleases. When God does his will, his power is unlimited. His power is omnipotent. The Puritan pastor and writer Stephen Sharnock from several hundred years ago said this, He says the power of God is that ability and strength whereby he can bring to pass whatsoever he pleases, whatsoever his infinite wisdom may direct, and whatsoever the infinite purity of his will may resolve. God's power is that which gives life and action to all the perfections of the divine nature. God's power is like himself, infinite, eternal, incomprehensible. It can neither be checked, restrained, nor frustrated by the creature. Now notice in verse 19, he says, we we should know the exceeding greatness of his power toward whom? Us. Don't miss the direction that this power is pointed. It is pointed towards us who believe. That should encourage us. Because the omnipotent power of God in his mercy and grace, he not just has that power, but he aims the exceeding greatness of his power toward those who believe. God is aiming the greatness of his power, the exceeding greatness of his power towards those who believe. Jump ahead just a chapter or two to Ephesians 3 verse 20. We see this word exceeding show up again. Ephesians 3, verse 20 and 21. Interestingly, it's also at the end of another prayer that Paul prays in in chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. But in verse 20, he says this, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. To him be glory in the church, by Christ Jesus, to all generations forever and ever. God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to his power. Now watch this. His ability is not according to what we ask or think. Right? Because he can do far above that. His ability is according to his power. And his power is omnipotent. He demonstrates that power in Christ. He demonstrates that power to us through Christ. And we see that in verses 20 to 23 of chapter 1. Let's read those together. Actually, we'll start in 19 and read them in sequence. He says that he wants us to know what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The power that is pointed towards us has been demonstrated by God in Christ Jesus. We see that in at least five ways here in these verses. Number one, in verse 20, it, the power that is pointed toward us has been demonstrated in Christ in that God raised Christ from the dead. Verse 20, the first phrase there. It says, He worked this power in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. What does it take to raise someone from the dead? What does it take to cancel what death has decreed? What does it take to defeat a bitter enemy, to undo what is supposed to be permanent? It takes power. It takes unlimited power to do all of that. And I think one of the greatest showcases of the power of God is when Christ burst up out of that grave and by coming to life again, he defeats sin and Satan and death and hell. Up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph o'er his foes. That's power. That's power. Now remember, that exceeding power of God demonstrated through Christ's resurrection is also directed toward us. And I think Paul here at the end of chapter 1, through a prayer, is setting up what he's about to say in chapter 2. In the early part, notice a couple verses in Ephesians 2, 1 and 5, and this is where we'll be next Sunday. In 2, 1, he says, he made you alive who were dead. Verse 5, he says, even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. Paul, in this prayer in chapter 1, is setting up what he's about to say. And he said, what God did in Christ with the exceeding greatness of his power in raising him from the dead is what he has done or will do or is doing in your life when he's raising you from the dead spiritually. What God did in Christ at his resurrection, he has also done for us when he made us alive to himself in Christ, raising us from the dead spiritually. And so he's putting these two together. He's setting this up. And he does it again here at the end of verse 20 as well. So the first way we see the power of God demonstrated in Christ is that God raised Christ from the dead. Secondly, in verse 20, he says he also seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. All right, God is seated or God seated Christ at his right hand. He raises up Jesus and puts him in the heavenly position of prominence of power and authority, the right hand of God almighty. Now notice in chapter 2 verse 6 what he says about us, cuz again Paul in a prayer here is setting up what he's about to say in chapter 2. In chapter 2 verse 6, 6, he says he raised us up together And made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He has raised us up and seated us in the heavenly places in Christ. So positionally, we are in Christ. We are with Christ in the heavenly places already. And there will come a time, praise God, when we will be with Christ in the heavenly places physically as well. He will raise us up to be... With him, That's the power of God. God can do that. Notice verse 21. It says, He raised up Christ far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. The third way that God's power is demonstrated in Christ is that God has placed Christ above every other power. And correspondingly, the beginning of verse 22, he says, He put all things under His feet, So you have God placing Christ above every other power and corresponding to that, you have God placing all other things under Christ's feet. Verse 22. Can God do that? Can he take Christ and lift him up and take every single other thing and put it down? Yes, he can. He is omnipotent. Who can make kings and who can take kings? The Bible says God can. Daniel 2 verse 21 says that God raises up and he removes kings. The the song we just sang a little bit ago, it says, Behold Our God. It asks these questions. Who has held the oceans in his hands? Answer, no one but God. Who has numbered every grain of sand? Answer, no one but God. Kings and nations tremble at his voice. All creation rises to rejoice. Who has given counsel to the Lord? Answer, no one but God. Who can question any of his words? No one. Who can teach the one who knows all things? Who can fathom all his wondrous deeds? Behold our God. He's the one. Seated on his throne, come let us adore him. Behold our king, nothing can compare. Come let us adore him. He is powerful. He has raised up Christ, exalted him, and he has subjected everything else. He is God, he does as he pleases. And please note too, and listen carefully to this statement. God does not do what is right and good. What God does is right and good. Do you follow me? What God does is right and good, no matter what God does, because he is perfect. He is all-powerful. He is omnipotent. The fifth way that we see God's power demonstrated in Christ is in the end of verse 22 and verse 23. It says, he gave him That's Jesus to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So God has given Christ to be head of the church. Now, Christ is God's gift to the world, right? But especially to the church, especially to the church. And then that phrase there is a little bit hard to understand in the English. It says, he gave him to be head over all things to the church. The Net Bible reads it this way. It says, he gave him to the church as head over all things. That might help you understand it a little bit more. He gave him to the church as head over all things. Can God determine who rules the world? Yes, he can. Can God determine who rules the church? Absolutely. Absolutely. He is God. He is all-powerful. And he has placed Christ as the ruler of the church. Those are five ways through verse 20 and 23 that we see that God demonstrates his power through Christ. If God can do those things, guess what? He can do anything. He can do anything. And remember, when we pray as Paul prays, we pray to the omnipotent God. The power of prayer is that we call on the one who has all power. And Paul gives us this prayer. And to a God who has all power, who has has the ability to do whatever he wants, and he's calling us then to pray that as well. Now, I want to go back through these verses and look at them again. But this time, I want to look at them from Christ's perspective. All right. These, the, this power of God was demonstrated through Christ, but let's go back now and talk about Christ and his perspective in these verses, verses 19 to 23. The first thing I want you to see in verse 20 is that Christ is alive. Christ is alive. God in his power, the exceeding greatness of his power, has worked in Christ and raised him from the dead. When those ladies and the disciples ran to the tomb that morning, they were looking for Jesus, but guess what? He wasn't there. The angel tells them, he is not here for he is risen. Just as he told you he was going to. So he dies on the cross for our sins, was buried. On the third day, he rises from the dead to secure for us our eternal life. Guess what? No other Savior can claim that. No other Savior can claim that they have risen from the dead. No other Savior, all other Saviors are dead or will die. And guess what? Stay dead. Only Christ lives forever. And that's why he rules. That's why he reigns. That's why he's in charge of this world, and he is in charge of the church. See, the resurrection changed everything. We've talked about this before, how it changed everything for the disciples. They went from a ragtag band of, I'm not sure what's going on in the world, to once Christ rose from the dead and the Spirit came upon them, they were the powerful witnesses and early leaders of the church. It changed everything for the people there that witnessed Christ after his resurrection, And guess what? It means everything for us today as well. Our hope is alive because Christ is alive. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul gives this extended argument as to why it matters about the resurrection, why the resurrection is so crucial for our faith, so crucial for our future. He says basically these three things. He says, if Christ is not risen, our faith and our preaching are empty. It says they're in vain. In other words, if Christ is still in the grave, I don't know why any of you are here this morning. I don't know why I'm doing this this morning, if Christ is still in the grave. If Christ is not risen, he says you are still in your sins. That's tragic. If Christ is not risen, you are still in your sins. And then he says, if Christ is not risen, then we will not rise either. We have no hope of a resurrection, no hope of a future in heaven. If Christ has not risen when we die here, we're done. But that's not true, is it? Because Christ has risen. Christ's life means our life. Why? Because we are in Him. We are in Christ. Therefore, His life has secured our life for us. Look at the second part of verse 20 down through the first part of verse 22. We see that Christ is alive here. Secondly, we see that Christ is above. God has seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. He has placed Christ far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet. So God is seated at... Christ is seated at the right hand of God. He is far above every other principality and power, and everything is under his feet. That's a pretty clear statement on the supremacy of Christ, isn't it? I don't know if he can state it any more, more clearly. Now notice here, verse 21, 21, he is not just above, he is far above. He is far above all principality and power and might and dominion. You know, you go out on a, on, a, on a dark night and you look up into the sky and you can see stars, right? You can see the ones that are visible. But we know from our exploration of space that there are more stars that we cannot see, right? Why? Because they are so far above. They are so far, way, way out there. We can't even see them, That's the picture of Christ. He is not just above, he is so far above every principality and power. If you like a sports analogy, it's this. Christ does not just win by one point in overtime on a last second shot. No, Christ absolutely dominates his position of prominence, absolutely dominates every other power, every other player, every other team. It's not even close. He doesn't just barely outdo, just barely squeak by. No, no, no. He is far above every other principality and power and might and dominion. He is the name, he says, that is far above every other name. He is the name that at its pronouncement, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. He is the one, as Revelation says, that is worthy of all blessing and glory and honor and power. Why? Because God has placed him above. Everything, verse 22 tells us, everything is under his feet. God has put all things under his, that's Christ's feet. This is actually a quote from Psalm 8-6. Psalm 8-6 says these words, in a prophecy of Christ it says, you, God, have made him, Christ, to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. And so Paul here is quoting Psalm 8, verse 6, that everything has been put under the feet of Christ. You know what, though, as we look around the world, it doesn't always seem that way, does it? It doesn't always look that way. It doesn't look like everything is under his feet. But please note this, folks. We do not base our life on what we perceive. We base our life on what we know. And according to Scripture, all things are under Christ's feet. All things are under Christ's feet. Governments are under Christ's feet. In John 19, Pilate said to Jesus when he was trying him, he said to Jesus, he said, I have power over you to crucify you. <laughs> and Jesus responded, oh, hold on a second. Yeah, I don't, I don't think so. He says, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. The power Pilate had came from the one he thought he had power over. Pilate had it switched around a little bit. That happens in our world sometimes, doesn't it? Governments don't rule Christ. They fall under his feet. Death is under Christ's feet, right? The power of death is under the power of Christ. Jesus shouted out into the grave. He said, Lazarus, come forth. And what absolutely had to happen? Lazarus had to come forth. Death had to bow to the power of Christ. Death had to fall under the feet of Christ. Nature is under Christ's feet. Remember that? The apostles and, the, the, and Jesus are out there on the sea and Jesus is asleep. Not a care in the world, right? And the disciples are going nuts because this storm has come up. And they say, Master, don't you care? We're all going to perish. And Jesus simply rises up and he says, peace be still. And he proved that nature and even the wind and the waves are under his feet. The wind and the waves have to obey his voice because he has dominion over them. The demonic realm, including Satan himself, is under the feet of Christ. Remember when Jesus sent the demons into the swine? And he told them, he said, you guys, you're going there. And the demons had to do what? They had to do it. Why? Because they're under his feet. All things fall under the jurisdiction and power of God Almighty, and he has placed Christ above all of these things. You say, but but things in this world are out of control. Governments do whatever they want to do. Natural disasters are increasing. Evil is running rampant in this world. Notice what he says at the end of verse 21. He says that all things are under his feet in verse 22. In verse 21, he says, Christ is above all principality. Every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. Paul says that Christ rules in this age and he rules in the one to come. There is no end to his rule. Things are never spinning out of control. Things are always being controlled by God. Not then, not now, not in the future is Christ ever underneath any of these things. He is always above. These things are under his feet. Jesus shall reign, the, the, the old song says, Jesus shall reign where the sun does its successive journeys run. Jesus is in control. Now look at number three here. This is the second part of verse 22. Christ is alive, Christ is above, and Christ is authority. Christ is authority. Verse 22, it says, God gave him, Christ, to be head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. In Matthew 28:18, Jesus said, All authority has been given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Christ. Christ has authority in, in all realms but he has been given by God specifically to be the head of the church. He has been given specific authority over the church. And this is a theme throughout the New Testament. It comes up at least two more times in the book of Ephesians. If you look at Ephesians chapter 4 verse 15, Ephesians 4 verse 15, it says speaking the truth in love, we may grow up in all things into him who is the head Christ. Christ is the head of the church. In chapter 5, verse 23 of Ephesians, it says the husband is head of the wife as also Christ is head of the church and he is the savior of the body. We see it in Colossians 1.18, which we read for our scripture reading. It said that Christ is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 19, it says there that some people have not held fast to the head of the church, the head being Christ. What is Christ the head of? He's head of the church. What is the church, according to this verse? It is the body. So here we see that he is the head of the church, which is his body. Now, he's obviously not talking about his physical body, right? Christ's body is not here on earth anymore, is it? but the body of Christ, his church, is. Think about that. The body of Christ is not here anymore, but the body of Christ, the church, is. Who is that? That's us. We are the visible representation of Christ on earth. We are his body. He is our head. We are what the world sees of Christ. That calls us to something very high, doesn't it? calls us to something very great. I was talking this week with with Pastor Kevin, former pastor here at the church, and we were talking about this passage, and he said, you know, that's a hard concept to understand, that Christ is the head and we are the body and what that looks like. And as I'm studying through this, I said, yeah, you're right, it is. It's challenging to figure this out. What does it mean for Christ to be the head of the church and the church to be his body? Some, Some thoughts on that. First, a head must have a body and a body must have a head, right? If there is a head of something, that implies a body. And if there is a body of something, that implies a head. And I think what that shows me is that there's a living connection. There's always a connection between the head and the body. You can't have a head over here and a body over there and they're disconnected. The head and the body have to be together, and that is a living connection. So so Christ as head and us as the body, that means there's a close association between Christ and his people. They are connected. There's a living connection there. That's why the church is not an organization. It is an organism. The big difference. Notice here he calls us the body of Christ, not a corpse. Corpse. The church is alive. It's alive because it is in Christ. We are a living, breathing, functioning, loving body. We are not asleep in Christ. We are alive in Christ. He is our head connected to the body. I think we see a a snippet of this, Jesus' connection here between the head and the body. We see it in what Adam said of Eve. All the way back there in Genesis 2. Adam says this. He says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Now go to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 30. And talking about the church, we hear this same language, this same imagery. Ephesians 5, verse 30. He says, for we are members of his body, of his flesh and of his bones. And so what Adam says about Eve back then seems to be pointing us ahead to what Christ will say of his body. And that's why marriage is so important, the marriage between a man and a woman, because it's a picture of the marriage between Christ and his church, that we are bone of his bones, as it were, and flesh of his flesh. So a head of a body implies a living connection, a close association. A head also implies rule, right? Right? the head of an organization, he's the ruler, he's the leader. He is the one the body follows, right? The head leads the body. It's hard to go anywhere without your head, right? And where your head goes, your body tends to follow. If your head falls down, what happens? Unless it's been a serious problem, you're falling down too, right? The head leads the body and the body shares in what the head does and where the head goes, Jesus, in the same way, is the head of the church. He is the absolute ruler who rules the church absolutely. He does not rule with the abuse of power that often leads to totalitarianism or a dictatorship. Because sometimes we we think that, right? Well, absolute power, we hear that phrase, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Not true of Christ. No corruption whatsoever. He is the absolute ruler of the church. He rules his church, though, with love. Think about it. He died for us. He made the ultimate sacrifice for us. And his rule in the church, his absolute power and rule in the church, is a continuation of his love for the church. The perfection of his being and character also perfects his rule as well. And so him being the head, that head implying rulership, for the body, it implies what? Submission. We must submit to our head. His headship implies our submission. He is the head. We are the body. If you're like me, we struggle with that a little bit, don't we? That submission to Christ as head. We get that mixed up sometimes. I am the head, he is the body. That's not what it says. We switch it around sometimes when we shouldn't. Who who is not the head of the body? Well, I put together a little list here for you. Who is not the head of the body of Christ? Well, just to be super clear, the Pope is not the head of the body. The Pope is not the head of the church. He does not speak for God. He does not speak for us. The Pope is a farce. He has absolutely no jurisdiction in true Christianity. None whatsoever. Who is not the head of the body? A denomination is not the head of the body. That's why we are a non-denominational Christian church. No denomination has cornered the market on leading the church. Who's not the head of the body? An ecclesiastical board is not the head of the body. There's no hierarchical structure of churches by which the the church reports to a supervisor, reports to a superintendent, who reports to so on and so forth. Who is not the head of the body? The congregation is not the head of the body. Granted, there's no local church without the congregation, but the congregation is not the head of the church. It's not majority rule. It's not a democracy that God has set up. Who's not head of the church? Head of the body, the pastors. The pastor is a shepherd, but not the chief shepherd. The authority the pastors have in the church is a delegated authority from Christ, who is the head, the chief shepherd. So pastors lead under the leadership of Christ. Not the head. I am not the head of this church. I represent the head. And by that representation, guess what? I have to love as he loved. I have to serve as he served. I have to shepherd as he shepherded. That's a high calling. That's a lot to deal with. Who is the head of the church? Who is the head of the church? Jesus Christ, according to Scripture, according to these passages that we see in Ephesians 1, Jesus Christ is the head of the church yesterday, today, and forever. He is the head, we are the body. You say, okay, I understand that, but what does that mean for me now? What does that mean for us? What does it look like? What does that look like in our lives? The fact that he is the head and we are the body, how does that play out in our lives? Look at verse 23. He says that he has given him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Got it? Good, moving on. That's a tough phrase, isn't it? You look at that and you say, okay, read that again. With the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. What is he saying? That's challenging to work through. Here's what I think it means. I think it means that it is Christ who is the one filling the church. Christ is filling the church. His fullness is the church's fullness. Him, his grace, His spirit is what fills the church. It's not filled with our dreams. It's not filled with our desires. It's not filled with our plans. It is filled with his will, his work, his power. That's why Jesus said back in Matthew 16, he said, I will build my church. Now he uses us to do that, but he is the one building his church. It is filled with him. Colossians 2, verses 16 and 19 are helpful in this because it says there that we should not be judged by traditions and rituals that are shadows of things to come. Rather, we are to hold fast to the head. That's Christ. Quote, from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. So as we submit to the head of the body, we are nourished and knit together and grow with the increase that is from God, the fullness that is from God. See, the church is not at its fullest when the programs run smoothly, when the budget is perfect, when the giving is abundant, or when the music is spotless. What we need in the church is more of Christ. And then he says, all these things will be added unto you. The church is at its fullest when we are filled with the fullness of Christ. The church is at its fullest when we are filled with the fullness of Christ. If after church today you run by KFC down here and you show up and they announce to you, you know, as you're going through the drive through or whatever, hey, just want you to know we're out of chicken. How can you even be open? I'm not here for the mashed potatoes and gravy, right? You don't go for the sides. You go to KFC for the chicken. I know that might be a crazy illustration, but think of it this way. If you go to the church and you can't find Christ, something is seriously wrong. The church should be closed. Because the church is the very fullness. The the church is to be the fullness of Christ. The church is to be filled with the fullness of Christ. What we need, and that's what Paul is praying for in this prayer, what we need is more of Christ. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. But sometimes we go seeking after the things. when We should be seeking after the head. And he says, those things, they'll take care of themselves. Seek Christ. He is the fullness who fills all in all. The body of Christ takes its cues from the head, which is Christ. Just like your body operates, right? You take your cues from your brain. It fires off all these, these signals and all these instructions for your body. We take our cues from the head, who is Christ. The body follows the head. And let me say this, if you're not following the head, you may not be in the body. You need to check. If you're not following the head, you may not be in the body. Are you in the body of Christ? The Bible says the whole world is under Christ here, but only those who are in Christ are actually his body. There's a difference. Only those who, by God's grace, come to faith in Christ are part of the body of Christ. If you are not yet in the body of Christ, the Bible is very clear that by faith in Christ, by putting your faith in Christ, you are are able to have salvation of your soul and forgiveness of your sins. If you do not have faith in Christ, guess what? You are still in your sins. And you do not have Christ as your head. You are not part of the body. There must be faith in Christ. I'm ask the men to come forward.